Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, and today we're going to ask whether or not Abraham, that is the biblical Abraham, the Abraham of the book of Genesis, is an icon of faith or a dangerous and delusional madman. It is certainly one of the top two or three scariest stories in the Bible. This is from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Notice anything strange about that story? Abraham is praised as a model of faith because he would have done it, killed his son. Could you? Would you? What about Isaac's mother, Sarah? Doesn't she have a say? What gives Abraham the notion that Isaac is his to kill? What is the legacy of this story in our culture? In what sense do we sacrifice children for higher ideals? My guest is Dr. Carol Delaney, author of Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth. Dr. Delaney is a cultural anthropologist. She writes in her book the following. In the beginning of the last decade of the 20th century, in that most modern of places, California, a tragedy of biblical proportions unfolded with the morning newspaper. Father sacrificed child. God told him to. So accustomed are we to horrendous tales of domestic violence that this headline might seem only a bizarre twist on the ordinary. People who read about the incident over their morning coffee noted it, registered a reaction, and turned the page muttering, That man must be crazy. In this way, the man was defined, the deed was labeled, and the whole thing could be put out of mind. A year later, when Christos Valenti came to trial, only one of the jurors remembered the newspaper story. Yet once upon a time, God asked another father to sacrifice his child. For his willingness to obey God's command, Abraham became the model of faith at the foundation of three monotheistic Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. His story has been inscribed on the hearts and minds of billions of people for millennia. That was Dr. Delaney. She explores the effects of this myth on our culture, and she asks, why is the willingness to sacrifice one's child the quintessential model of faith? Why not the passionate protection of the child? What would be the shape of our society had that been the supreme model of faith and commitment? Dr. Delaney is Emerita Professor at Stanford University and is currently a research scholar at Brown University. She's on Religion for Life via Skype from Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome, Dr. Delaney. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Nice to talk with you. 
Well, it is good to talk with you, too. Uh, Dr. Delaney is the author of Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth, a book that you wrote in the late 1990s, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. I think it came out in 1998, the first time. And this book is 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 about uh, the biblical figure of Abraham. And uh, to kind of catch listeners up, I want to uh, tell them how I got connected with uh, Dr. Delaney. Um, I did a series of sermons on the myths of Genesis uh, at my congregation this past fall, and uh, I put the texts of my sermons on my blog, shuckandjive.org, and somehow a text of it got uh, into Dr. Delaney's email and uh, because it had to do with uh, Abraham. And so Dr. Delaney sent me an email back, and, and in this you said, I agree with a lot of what you say. You're talking to me about patriarchy, gender, fathers, and sons, except toward the end when I feel you whiffle out of the implications. As an anthropologist, um, I do not believe these are pan-human definitions, uh, but constructed in specific cultures. And so I was talking about the stories of Genesis as kind of universal human stories, and you and you said, no, they're, they're, they're more particular and specific than that. Uh, can you explain what that means? Sure. Um, I think different cultures have very different myths, and not all myths are myths of creation. Not all origin myths are myths of creation, but the one that we have is a myth of creation. And if there's creation, there has to be a creator. And so also these myths um, assume certain ideas about gender, about relationships, about um, ideas about the divine. Uh, that are not universal. And I think, therefore, we need to look at each culture and the myths that seem to influence them. And the biblical myth, particularly Genesis, has been extraordinarily influential, not just for religious people, but for our culture, for Western culture as a whole. And so the reason that it appears to be universal is because it's so dominant. Is that right? I think so, yeah. And so the myths of, but they are particular. And what is particular about them in, in regards to uh, patriarchy, for example? Well, um, they are particular, but of course they're very widespread because Western culture it has a, been a huge influence for you know thousand years and more. And there are other cultures that perhaps might be male dominant, but patriarchy is different. Patriarchy means the power of the father. And therefore, when I started looking at these things, I started to think about what was presupposed by the story of Abraham, rather than just starting from the interpretations of the story. I wanted to know what it was based on, what kinds of ideas about gender particularly um, underpinned it. And that's where I sort of continued my uh, investigation. And your investigation led you to uh, see that the that patriarchy has a particular theory of procreation to it. Is that right? The seed and the ground as a, as a metaphor for, uh, well, where babies come from. I found That's that. Right. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, for a long time, I have been very disturbed about the Abraham story, right from when I was a child. And um, this is going back a little bit, if that's okay. But I was sent to uh, the local school, which was a Catholic school, even though I'm not Catholic. And the first time I heard about it, it was in the third grade, and I was furious. I said, what kind of God is that? I don't want that kind of God. And then the story kind of went underground until I had a child myself. 
and began thinking about that story. And that's when I entered um, Harvard Divinity School and realized that you have to look at the language. And the language of that story is all about Abraham's seed. So what did that mean? And I started to think that, you know, back in those days, people had no idea about genes and ovum and all that stuff, but rather they had a very particular theory of procreation. And it was the male seed that was creating the child, basically. And the woman was seen as the ground. Um, certainly nurturing, but it did not give the identity. And it was the seed that passed along through males from father to son and on and on. And it did not go through daughters. Um, and so even though I was at the divinity school at a time when there was a lot of um, feminist critique of the biblical stories, many of them just wanted to change the language. And I said, no, because that will totally mask the patriarchal underpinnings of this whole religious system. So I was against changing the language from seed, say, to offspring or seed to children, because that's not what was meant. It was definitely about the dominance of fathers. And the idea of that the seed of the father really is implanted in the womb, which is like ground, so the ground doesn't provide any identity to the seed, or any, right. or, or even to claim any power or relationship, in a sense. That's right. Yes, that's right. So that's um, that's how Abraham can get away in our story in Genesis with uh, deciding to go and or, or obeying God the Father who tells him to sacrifice his only son, which is actually he had another one too. But anyway, in the, ca the case of the story, without having to get Sarah's permission. Yes, I think that's right. Um, and it also that is the way we think. I mean, first of all, the name Abraham means exalted father or the father is exalted. And so there's the establishment within that story of the whole notion of not only of fatherhood, but also of God as a father, as a, at least as a male. Um, and that he is the one who created the world as fathers create children. And I think there's an analogy there um, going on between both that level and the human level. So I think the story, even though Genesis begins with creation, I think it's this story and this idea about procreation that establishes that, that whole idea. And that, that whole idea that um, the male, male and the male god, creativity, uh, really has control and power over the, the seed or the offspring. Right, right. So uh, Abraham can think that he's sacrificing, in a sense, sacrificing or uh, killing, really, uh, his yep. own child, that yep. it's his to kill. Yes, of course, it belongs to him in that theory of procreation. And one of the reasons that I feel that I can sort of back this up is when I did my field work, I think, you know, in a Turkish village. And the same theory of procreation, of course, exists in Islam as in Judaism. And the people there who are uneducated, they did not know about more modern theory of procreation, still talked in terms of seed. And yes, the father had absolute um, authority in the household, and the children belong to him, and they talked about it that way. I'm speaking with Dr. Carol Delaney, a cultural anthropologist, author of the book Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth. This is Religion for Life. The um, 
Abraham on Trial, what is the significance of that title? Well, there have been um, books written and, and stories about the trials of Abraham, that apparently there were 10 trials about leaving his uh, home country and other kinds of trials that he went through. And so I kind of turned it a little bit and wanted to make a play on that word and put him on trial and why we have not really, um, you know, investigated this story a bit more and what does it mean? Because he is the model of faith, precisely because he's willing to go through with it. He's not the one who said, stop. He's the model of faith because he was willing to go through with it. And he, I think he's the terrible. model of faith because he was willing to obey this voice, the That's right. God, to go and, and kill your child. And, uh, and, and it does. It, uh, obviously, Abraham has a parallel uh, within Christianity. We think of the verse of John 3.16, in which uh, God sent his only beloved son, uh, so, so, so to speak. So that, that myth uh, also carried over into the Christian mythology. Yes, I think so. I think um, the Christian theology is based or takes its cue from, from the Abraham story. What Abraham didn't do, God did. And, of course, the, the subtitle of your book is The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth, meaning that these stories have effects in the way we treat children. You begin your book uh, by talking about a trial in California in which uh, a man uh, killed his child and said God told him to do it. Can you tell us about that trial? Yes. Um, in fact, I've always been thinking of writing a book about Abraham and the story of Abraham, but then... All of a sudden, one day, I saw the newspaper about this trial that was going, or the man uh, who had sacrificed, he said, his child because God told him to. And I just decided I had to go and attend the trial and interview everybody. And at first, I thought of writing a whole book about the trial and then um, decided it would be one chapter in the bigger book. But it was fascinating. I mean, everybody, of course, knew about the Abraham story and made um, allusions to it. Um, but some of the people later when I talked to them said, well, God would never ask somebody to do something against scripture. In other words, because the scripture now has um, said the, you know, not to do that. On the other hand, one of the other people said, but how do you know the mind of God? And that's exactly what the man who sacrificed his child, you know, agreed, said that he believed uh, that he had heard the word of God and that he went through with it. So what happened in that trial? What happened to the man? Um, well, he was accused of murder because there is no, obviously in a secular legal system, there's no um, term for sacrifice, but he was accused of murder, and but he was also then um, thought to be insane. And so he's been committed to uh, an insane asylum. And he, several times he came up for probation, and several times he has been denied. And I attended a couple of those sessions as well. So what is the difference then between that man who is insane and uh, accused of murder and Abraham? Exactly. I think that is the question, and I think people need to question the, the biblical story that we, you know, up on a pedestal, as I think you have indicated, um, because it's still about being willing to do it. And here's where I think 
there's the whole, what I consider, what I call the God loop. You have to love God more than your children or more than your fellow beings. Whereas I feel that what would be godly is to love your children and your fellow beings rather than first being willing to sacrifice everything for God. I think it should show up through our relationships rather than um, holding up this image, basically, that we have um, and which we fight other people who hold up different images um, rather than trying to um, instill some way of having this love of fellow beings be the, be the model. I'm speaking I don't think we get to it by first loving God first and being willing to sacrifice for that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. Carol Delaney, cultural anthropologist, uh, author of Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth. And we're talking about the story of Abraham and its uh, social effects. Now, some people might say this and this that we're reading too much into this story. That uh, uh, that the people who originally read this story or have been telling the story weren't really talking about literally sacrificing their children. Uh, it's it's a symbol. It's a myth. You're supposed to take the faith aspect, the spiritual uh, idea of it. That he's giving up um, what's most important to him. What do you think about those explanations? I think they're silly. Um, I think I just talked about that a little bit, um, that it, it can't just be, a, I mean, the whole idea of faith that based on this story, that he is willing to sacrifice his child as the model of faith. That's not the kind of faith I would want. Um, and uh, also people, many of the traditional interpretations are that this story put an end to child sacrifice. Well, there's no evidence that child sacrifice was being, you know, committed during those early times. And the only evidence, and it's not very, it's certainly not unequivocal, came thousand, more than a thousand years later than the Abraham story. And there's nothing about child sacrifice before that story. So I think it has, I think those kinds of um, views, let's just take it on faith, are, are silly. And I think they have very dangerous implications. And I think we started to talk about the social legacy. One of it is, of course, patriarchy and the ways in which women have been thought about and treated. But the other ways are, are the ways we sacrifice children even today. And I think I talked about that a bit as sometimes it's the sacrifice of innocence, uh, the sexual abuse that's been going on, and even by priests who are supposed to be there to protect children. It's scandalous. And um, there's abuse of children, there's murder of children. I think I gave statistics that a child every 14 hours, a child under five is murdered, and teenagers every few hours. I mean, what kind of culture is this that we allow this kind of thing? And war, where we send off our sons and daughters now, too, to sacrifice for the country. I think it's these are kinds of ideas that I would like to see changed. And these ideas, um, you would say, come from this this story of, of Abraham or stories like it, or this story in particular. I think um, you can't say that there's a direct connection to back to this story, but the more I investigate it, the more I think about its ramifications, even into a secular culture, um, certain values about the value of sacrifice 
Um, and yet it's never self-sacrifice. It's always we sacrifice our sons and daughters to sure. go on, for instance, in war. And we also sacrifice their innocence with the sexual abuse and mutilation and murders of children. And I think the other thing I talked about was welfare. And when these fathers who have planted their seed, you know, escape and leave them, and then we castigate the single mothers and their children instead of protecting them and helping them. So I think there's been a lot of ramifications. The other thing, of course, is in marriage and what marriage is supposed to be and about women taking their husband's name so they disappear. There's a lot of implications. And I can't say that there's a direct connection, but it is a faith that has been predominant in the West for 2,000 years. And that faith has, and to, do, that faith okay. has to do with the, um, the sense of the, of the believer of just trust and obey. Um, having to do with the, the the father power or patriarchy of of the willingness to just take it on faith to go ahead and and believe and to in a sense be a vessel I was thinking now that uh, uh, over Christmas uh, talking about uh, the virgin birth and the whole idea that that theory can only happen in this idea of patriarchy with the seed in the womb in which Mary contributes uh, nothing, um, but uh, the seed or the word or Christ or God is implanted in her. And so she becomes then a model of faith, in wh- and the model is that she contributes nothing of herself to her life, but um, is simply a vessel for an other to take control. And, and I was thinking about that in terms of um, a lack of responsibility for our choices. Uh, I'm, I'm just a vessel, and God does everything. Seems to be like a, a like a that that spirituality has, has taken a number of different forms in terms of um, you know not taking responsibility for our actions. I think that's a really good analysis, and I totally agree with you. Um, the other thing about the virgin birth, and well, Chris, getting back to Christmas, I remember when I was at the divinity school, I sent a Christmas card around saying, "Every birth is a miracle," and I think that's what the original message might have been. And yet theologians have, are the ones who have constructed it into this, you know, huge edifice uh, and with the meanings that it has come to have. But in fact, I think every birth is a miracle. And maybe if we started thinking of that rather than just one birth was a miracle, things might begin to change as well. I'm speaking with Dr. Carol Delaney, who is a professor emerita at Stanford University. She's currently a research scholar at Brown, and she has written a book called Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth, uh, challenging the Abraham story and saying we ought to look at this story critically. And that is very difficult in many cases for people even to begin to look at the Bible critically. Um, to even consider uh, things such as the Abraham story as as a myth in and of itself. Uh, but you're suggesting not only just to regard it as a myth, but also regard it as a myth that may be harmful for our health, our health as uh, uh, a society, our, our health in regards to the way we treat children, the way we treat uh, women. Um, you mentioned that there were some, that this idea of procreation in a patriarchal uh, way of the seed being planted in the ground wasn't the only pre-modern or isn't the only pre-scientific way of understanding procreation, that there are some other theories. What are some of those? Well, that was wonderful when I was decided to become an anthropologist because I found out that there were other cultures 
that most people don't really know about um, that have very different ideas of how human beings come into existence. And one of the most different, or the most, yes, the most different one is among the Australian uh, native peoples of Australia, whose uh, traditional myths are that children are the reincarnation of maternal, or I shouldn't even say maternal because that means mother, but of the female's um, ancestors. And that the father by, in intercourse is only feeding this uh, child-to-be. So a very different theory. And um, they have very different social um, ideas, very different kinship systems, very different ways of thinking about relationships, very different values. There are also Native American tribes who um, have had different ideas about um, procreation. And I think, again, some of them are not about creation. It's about coming into being or um, reincarnations of various um, ancestors, whether from the male side or the female side. But there, there are definitely, and there have been cultures that have had very different ideas about this. Unfortunately, of course, Western culture has become so dominant and widespread that many of those are disappearing and they also don't want to appear as ignorant. So I think that is one of the reasons we probably don't hear about so many of these different systems. But that really helped me um, in anthropology to study various uh, kinship systems and how people thought about uh, relationships. And not all of them think about or have even terms, mother and father, because those terms are related to a very specific theory of procreation. They have very different terms for thinking about their relationships. I wonder if the, the modern scientific understanding of procreation might actually be helpful in which men and women contribute equally. Um, that uh, understanding that in a mythical or symbolic or religious sense uh, might be a, uh, a helpful corrective to this patriarchal notion of procreation that we still carry with us, uh, perhaps unconsciously, in, in the way that we uh, regard uh, wh whose children uh, belong to whom and, and so forth. I totally agree. I think that's one of the things I would like to see. But as you know, myths die very hard, and so, so does the language. But um, yes, I think it would be terrific if we could start to um, think creatively about how to symbolize the fact that both men and women contribute to the creation of a child. Of course, women do even more. Not only do they provide half of the genetic uh, input, they also gestate the child and give birth to the child and most often nurture it um, after it's born. So uh, we need to rethink some of the ways we talk about um, procreation and changing the language in that respect, yes. Biblical language, I think, should stay the way it is because it shows exactly how patriarchal the whole system is. My guest has been Dr. Carol Delaney, cultural anthropologist, a professor at Stanford University, Professor Emerita, currently a research scholar at Brown University, author of Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth. Dr. Delaney, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. You can find more information about Carol Delaney and her books at www.caroldelaney.com. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a co-production of WETS-FM and HD, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. 
I'm John Shuck, minister of First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. A podcast of this program is available at the church's website, www.fpcelizabethton.org. And information about the show, including contact information for me, is found at www.religionforlife.me. Be well. Be well.